0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Oh, the shark, babe has such teeth, there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie, baby, and it keeps it. Uh, out of sight. You know when that shot So welcome to
2: Macklin's Take, everyone, with me, Andy Clark. Uh, and Matt Macklin is back. The Mac is back. He uh, took, a, he took a, a day off when we went down to see Clarissa Shields because he was erring on the side of caution. He's a responsible man. He wasn't feeling quite tip-top. Uh, so once upon a time... That was a pretty regular thing, Matt, not feeling tip-top, but not these <laughs> days. He's, uh, he, his body is a temple, so he's back with us anyway, and it's, it's good to see you, Matt, good to see you. And we are in Manchester on Sky Duty, and the great thing about that is that you just get great guests on tap. And we walked into the weigh-in room today, and there was, well, there was the man we've got today with us, Cole Frampton, there was Ricky Hatton, there was Dominic Ingle, there was... Jamie Moore, there were, there were all sorts of people around, and, and Carl's agreed to join us, so thanks very much for so that. You got the best one. We did get the best one, yeah. You were, <laughs> you, <laughs> you were our number one choice. You were our number one choice. We bumped Adam we're gonna Smith. We're going to get down the list after that. If you we, knocked us back. We were gonna, you know. We bumped Adam Smith back from four o'clock. He wanted to do this time, but we had to say to him, no, listen, Carl Frampton, two-weight world champion, he's doing four o'clock, so you'll have to do five, so that's why he's in Starbucks now, furious. He's fuming. He's fuming in there. You won't uh, get
1: another gig, Carl. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But he'll be back out soon enough. So I thought with you an interesting thing might be to just just wind things back a little bit because one thing I don't know that much about is your kind of formative boxing years. And you'll talk a lot about your career. People ask you ask you about it an awful lot, particular things as well, the Quigg fight. He was there as well today, yeah. of course. Um, they'll ask you about the Santa Cruz fight, so those kind of defining fights. But what I wonder is... When you very first started doing this, what, what, what brought you to boxing in the first place? And what, what is it about
0: this whole madness mm. that attracted you, sucked you in and kept you here? Well, um, I was very young when I started boxing. I was only seven years old and the local gym was literally a 500 yards from my front door. So it was curiosity more than anything. I knew there was a boxing club there and I wanted to, to see what it was like. Um, as a kid, I was very quiet and <laughs> very short. I had big stupid ears and stuff. I feel like I've grown them a wee bit. But I was, wasn't bullied or anything. I'm not going to cry like I was bullied. But I was quiet and I would have stepped away or shied away from a bit of confrontation in the street. I went to the gym, started training and started sparring pretty early. And the guys who were kind of the boisterous boys in the street, I was beating them up in the gym. And I think that's really when I got the bug for it. I loved football at the time as well. And it was okay. I wasn't a bad player. Um, but it was a much better boxer. And uh, I just loved it. Loved it. I remember being young. Loved sparring, but hated training. So I'd be hiding behind bags and talking to people and always being getting you know shouted at by the coaches for not training and sometimes I didn't want to go to the gym, my mum was always like, go to the gym, she was always on top of me, forcing me to go to the gym, and uh hated that at the time, but I'm obviously grateful that, that she made me go back. It's interesting that you say
2: that you you always liked sparring and you wanted to spar straight away, so the, the idea of having a fight, although in a more controlled environment, was something that you didn't have a problem with, but... I hear it the other way around a lot. I hear about a lot of the fighters who love the training, but they don't, as much as you can ever not like it, given that you do it, they don't really like fighting. Mm. And that, Matt, I always find that a really, really weird one. I mean, from my own point of view, I loved sport when I was a kid and and, and I was was decent enough. But as much as I admire all of you fighters, and I do more than any other athletes in, in, in the whole of sport, I'm not jealous. I don't I don't want to be one. But then, you know, it, it's a good start, isn't it? Is what I'm trying to say is is that if you like sparring and you like fighting because there are quite a lot of fighters who who love the training but they they have to fight.
1: Yeah, I mean, they just, it's not it's almost like they don't really want to, but it's it's what, the inevitable end result. What Carl said there how, you know, he he was small maybe out on the street and like, you know, you're a kid and whatever and kids are kids aren't they? kids can be crawled and named or you know, leaving you out of things or whatever. And then, but obviously, he had that competitive edge in him because when he got into sparring, com- it came out. And I've seen that years ago with different uh, people, you know, quiet. Uh, in the amateur days, even a schoolboy boxing, you'll see a quiet kid there. And then when the ball goes, he turns into a tiger. And you just see, it's obviously in him, do you know what I mean? Maybe it's just maybe it's not in his exterior, but internally he's got that fighting and that competitiveness. And there's nothing more competitive than one-to-one. Yeah. You know, combat, you know what I mean? It's uh, it, it's the ultimate, isn't it? I I, um, I love the sparring. I, I didn't, the tra- physical training of running when I was no- normally a schoolboy, I didn't really do that much. I only used to go boxing probably once a week the first you know year or two. Um, you know, the gym was probably seven miles away from where I lived. I had to get a lift down with my mum and my dad whenever that, you know, it was in town. The rush hour traffic wasn't great. Plus, I was playing that much football. And other sports I played you know Gaelic football hurling if, even clubs in Birmingham but, but I would have played you know rugby for the school football for the school so and I'm, my, my school was quite sporty so I was always I literally just go to the gym once a week and spar I didn't do any running or circuits I just sparred for the first couple of years but I think when you're a kid and you're playing that much sport you're fit anyway do you know what yeah. I mean and uh, to, to get in and spar that, that was enough for me but I loved the sparring you know and, and as Carl said um, you're right. There are some people that probably didn't that showed away from that initially and then grew into that. But for me, the sparring was what that one-to-one competitiveness. That was the corner. Kind of, that was the lure of it. you know? And that was the, what lured me into
0: boxing. That and the Rocky movies, of course. Yeah. Talk, <laughs> talking about competitiveness, like I was extremely competitive as a kid, and even playing football. I used to play like captain to our football team. Played centre midfield, and I was always pretty aggressive. Um, But very very On the pitch I mean But very very competitive And I used to Like I used to fall out with mates Because If we'd lost a game I'd have been Fucking Furious Annoyed Pissed off And down in the dumps for a while But everyone's back in the change room Literally five minutes after the match Laughing and not really current And I was always like It used to annoy me so much um, I was the same as that Exactly the same as that
1: Terrible loser And if the lads weren't As terrible a loser as me I thought they didn't care enough And I'd be going mad at them As if like You think this is funny That was, I'd be fuming that, that it wasn't hurting them As much as it was I don't think that's me. a bot
0: See talking about terrible losers as well There's a guy uh, uh, Darren Sutherland's old coach Can't remember his name Dublin guy Uh St Saviour's St Saviour's Is it McCormick McCormick and he says I think it was McCormick it was someone I think it was him anyway but he says about he doesn't mind seeing a kid throw a tantrum when they lose people talk about you know bad losers and stuff if you're a kid and you've lost a fight a close fight and you cry and you throw a bit of a tantrum that means you wanted to win it's not a bad thing obviously when you Get older and you, you can't you can't cry and throw tantrums. But to learn to take it. or harness it a bit of better. Of course. Earlier. But as as I, I like this. I don't mind seeing a kid that having a little tantrum if if I get beaten a close fight.
2: No, nor me, not at all. And it's interesting that the two of you graduated to an individual sport from a team sport, and and one of the reasons would have been what you've just been saying is that the accountability when you're only accountable for yourself is is purely that. The credit is yours. The blame is yours. It, it begins and, and ends at, at your doorstep, and, and that's quite common. I speak to a lot of fighters who started in team sports, and then in the end
1: decided boxing was for them. I always say this because people, you know you, when you, people that you meet from years back when you would play different sports with, and I was good at all the sports I played. Like I say, that mad competitiveness really gets stuck in. Aggressive, not nah, aggressive to fight, but you know, a real winner you know, will get stuck in, and. I, the way I say it, try and explain it, is it's like this. If I'd scored, if we, if we won the cup final and I scored a hat trick and got man of the match, and everyone was there on the Sunday cheering, all the families and everything cheering us on, and then I compare that to winning a club bout on a, on a Tuesday night in the arse end of Wolverhampton, somewhere in some social club, everyone smoking back then. No one there, just my coach. The, the high of getting the hat trick and becoming manager was nowhere near. As high as how I felt after winning that fight in in that lonely dingy old social club, and nowhere one there to see it, nowhere near. And if I, if, I, if I had a shucker and scored an own goal, and we lost because of me, that low would have been nowhere near as bad as if I lost that fight either. It was just that literally boxing. It's the ultimate. Comp- if you're a competitive person, as obviously clearly Carly's and I was, and most are. It's that. It's the ultimate. You know, it's one to one. There's no team. You're not sharing the glory, and you're not sharing the pain when you lose either. It's
0: it's the it's the agony or the ecstasy, and there's no in between. Every fight as a kid, when you're in a club show in a social club, felt like a world title fight. Like it, I remember always wanting to win and being very nervous about these like smoke filled rooms and there's guys just drunk watching, maybe a couple of hundred people or whatever, um, cheering you on. But I remember boxing in all these club shows, wanting to win. It's something that always happened, especially when you're on club shows around your own area, if you won and you were a kid, you got money off people. So you're always you're always like half professional and getting paid. Um, probably getting paid more money than some professionals these days, you know. But old men who were drunk firing you a fiver or a couple of quid, that was unbelievable. Getting at. like sometimes you'd walk away from an amateur bout as an eleven-year-old with twenty-five quid and you'd feel like a millionaire. It was, it was a magic feeling, so
2: you were talking then about it's understandable and, and not a bad thing if if young fighters have tantrums when they when they first pick up a defeat and, and of course something that can happen in, in boxing, which makes it unique to other sports is sports is that you can get handed a defeat that you don 't necessarily deserve, and that 's something that takes a bit of sucking up and getting used to that that toughens you up that makes you grow up quite quick i mean. Any early memories of, of maybe tantrums you had or the first time you felt you got robbed and, and how long it took you to get used to the fact that this is boxed.
0: Hey. Hey, kid. hey, hey, everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian
1: philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something?
0: I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desire and Capital podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! In, in amateur boxing, especially, there's a lot of cries for robbery. Anytime someone gets beat up, but it was robbed, um, and and I think when you box on club shows, if you're in the if you're the away fighter, you need to win big to get the decision. So I had plenty of defeats in my career. There was some sometimes I was robbed, other times I was just fairly beaten. But I remember one one instance, I was in a club show in West Belfast, and in a in a. A social club called the PD, um, which is a Republican, pretty much IRA, bar. And I'm Protestant from Tigers Bay. And I fought one of the local kids. Um, and he bit me on the shoulder during the fight. And I shouted, oh, fuck, he's bit me, to the referee. And I got a public warning for talking. The referee like put his hand in his lips and went, oh, stop. No talk on public. I'm like, look at my fucking arm for the bite mark in it, and I got a public warning, I lost that fight, but there were so many things like that as a kid. But you just have to suck it up and, and carry on. A good example: Paddy Barnes lost his first twelve fights. Now, if you're losing twelve fights in a row, I, I'm, I would have stopped. I would have packed it in. I They're think. Not all robberies, are they? No, not all robberies, but most people are packing it in. But Paddy went on to become a three-time Olympian, a two-time Olympic medalist, one of the greatest amateur boxers of all time. Pro career wasn't that great. <laughs> and he let, uh, yeah, he, he'll yeah, take that well because me and Potter are good mates. But... I think Paddy was over the hill going to the Olympics in Rio (laughs) probably
2: probably. he couldn't do do the weight in Rio could he I remember he was boxing for Italia Thunder I think in WSB and him and Michael both were Michael Conlon and they qualified through that which is brilliant because it means you qualify about 18 months before the Olympics but by the time the Olympics came around he couldn't do 49 kilos anymore and just what happened to that whole Irish team, that Olympics, we, we talked about it briefly before, it was was amazing. Joe Ward as well. Kate, yeah, Joe Ward got disqualified, which was absurd. Uh, Paddy couldn't do the weight. Katie Taylor, I thought, maybe after getting a few going her way over a good, good period of time, didn't get one that I thought she could easily have got. Mm. And it all just kind of fell apart. You didn't. Um, the Olympics wasn't something that happened for you. And w- when you look back on that, how... Did you feel you met your goals as an amateur? And, and if you didn't, did that kind of give you further fuel when you turned pro?
0: I'd done okay as an amateur. I won two Irish senior titles at different weight divisions. I won a few multi-nation medals. I won a European Union silver medal. Um, but I never went to a major, major tournament. I never went to Commonwealth Games even. Um, I never I never went to the Olympics. But th- that was one of the reasons why I turned professional. So... I was David Oliver Joyce, who is my friend, was the number one featherweight um, in Ireland at the time um, for Beijing, yeah, 2008. Um, and there was, I was kind of outperforming him on the, in the multi-nations and, and our kind of the training camps and stuff, so Billy Walsh, the coach at the time, suggested a box-off between me and David Oliver. Um, David Oliver's coach, um, was the president of the Irish Boxing Association at the time, I had a perforated eardrum and he said something about this box-off has to happen within the next week or it doesn't happen. I never ended up getting the box-off because of the perforated ear and Davey went to four qualifiers and didn't qualify for Beijing and when he came home, I boxed him in the All-Irelands final. I dropped him. I gave him a standing count. I beat him convincingly and it was almost like me turning pro was like sticking the fingers up to the IABA saying you should have given me a shot and the option was to wait around for London in 2012 How old would you have been? I London? was 22 when I turned pro I would have been 20, 26 Six, yeah. and which is a bit old and, yeah. and who knows I, I may not have qualified Yeah yeah. It's a long time to wait at that age and you're not sure Absolutely and I think I, to be honest being brutally honest I don't think I would have qualified and I'll tell you why John Joe Nevin was a 56 kilo boxer at the time which would have been my division and as an amateur I wouldn't have beat John Joe so I wouldn't even have got the qualifier again so I think I made the right decision
2: Well he won a silver medal in the end didn't he lost to Luke Campbell in the final so that that Irish team was so strong for for such a long time there is just as much politics or at least there can be in amateur boxing as there is in in professional boxing does that does that harden you to it to the business to any extent when you do go to turn professional because it is it is it is very different i mean some some fighters i see who turn over i do look at them and i wonder whether they're quite cut out for it but it must be a sport that makes you grow up quickly because well for all the reasons we've just been talking about you have to you have to take responsibility you have to harden yourself to pain you have to kind of reconcile yourself with injustice at times and you have to do it quickly
1: yeah i mean I went to the World Junior Championships in 2000 in Budapest, and I really thought I'm going to go and win the gold medal here because I'd been performing, winning gold medals in multi nations, and I'd actually gotten down from 71 kilos to 67 welterweight for it. So I thought that'd give me, uh, you know, the edge to go into it uh, that I'd, I'd go all the way and, and get the gold medal. And um, I got to, I boxed really well, first fight uh, beating Italian guy Andre De Lucia, who had beaten actually in an England against Italy match, um, but it, you know, boxed him down at welterweight, beat him. And then in the next round, I think it, was, it might have been the quarterfinals or the last 16, I boxed the Hungarian. I think I've told you this one before, Andy, if Yeah, well, you
2: spoke to me, John Dillon, I mean, about it. But you're, you're boxing in Hungary against the Hungarian, who's also good. And that means that, basically, you're going to have to shoot him to win that
1: I fight, mean, this really. is when they brought out the outclass rule for this. I think it was this tournament, or this the other tournament before, you know, 50, it was 15 points at that time. And I came back after the first round, thought, good good round, you know what I mean? And uh sit down, and it was Nigel Travis's dad, Calvin Travis, yeah. in my corner. And he says to me, you're two down. And I was like, what? Do you know two down? So anyway, I was like, all oh, right, okay. I'm going to stick on his hands." I went out the next round. And, you know, I had an even better round. And I came back to the corner. And I was 10 down. Ka- Calvin's head was gone. He was shouting out at someone in the ring. He wasn't even giving, taking my gum shield out or giving me a drink. Because, you know, he was a passionate guy. And Carl knows, knows him. He was going mental. You know, third round. Halfway through the round. Bing, bing. bell goes outclassed. 17-2. I don't think he threw seventeen punches. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I basically punched him pillars opposed. I couldn't believe it. It was I was absolutely disgusted. I had a professional style at the time. I was hanging around uh a lot with Robert McCracken and Spencer McCracken. You know, I was kind of very much with uh, thought I was gonna turn pro with them at that point. And I, I thought, you know what, fuck this. I'm turning pro after this. You, you've talked as well, um, before, uh it's always entertaining about
2: just what goes through your head when you turn pro so I just wonder what it was like for you because you have you have all these decisions you've got to make uh, particularly if you've been a high profile amateur and and your your training regime and all the rest of it may may be determined for you which would be the case if you're on GB or on the Irish elite performance squad now you've got a lot of things you've got to decide on and and most people their head just ends up spinning I mean how did you manage to navigate it all
0: well I think the big issue for me turning professional was the biggest concern for me was the difference in the gloves. So going from soft amateur gloves to and, and head guards, I never—I don't even think when I when I fought as a pro, I'd ever had my as a, my pro debut. I'd never had my hand in a professional glove before. I think in the changing room, I remember putting the gloves on and kind of touching myself around the head and going.
1: what is this if I get
0: hit with this and I was fighting a clown like you do in your debut in your first few fights but I remember being really nervous about how hard it was going to be in the difference of of the gloves and I I remember I get hit like just with a nothing shot really and I remember just thinking holy shit this This is is, different this is way different different. this is way different the guy was crap I stopped him in the second round but the big concern with me from going from amateur boxing to professional was the gloves um I was boxing at like I was boxing on a matchroom room my debut in the Liverpool Olympia in front of maybe twenty people at like five thirty. Um but I remember being genuine I was I was frightened. I was frightened and and worried about, about conscious about oh if I get knocked out here, like holy shit, this is terrible.
2: I was just gonna ask you exactly that, just to see whether you would admit to, to, to that kind of just just physical fear, basically, because plenty of people won't. Um, it's unusual, even though this is a long time ago, it's unusual for an active fighter to, to be happy to, to to admit to something like that. But it's, it's... I mean, it's just a big part of the sport, isn't it? I mean, it's hard, it hurts, it's painful, bad things yeah. can happen. And if you're not afraid... There's got to be something wrong with you, probably. Oh, you,
1: I mean, but, but nerves are a good thing. They make yeah. you sharp. I remember mean, fear is a good thing, yeah. you know, as long as you don't let it overwhelm you. And I remember listening to Carl talk there. it took me back. I remember, some my pro debut, I remember, it wasn't so much a boxer guy called Ram Singh, who I knew was terrible. And I knew, even though I had the nerves, no head guard, no vest. What was his name? Ram Singh. Oh, I always had Rob C. Rob no. C. nerves, <laughs> but I was in Glasgow, though. <laughs>
0: but,
1: but, you know, got him out of that first round. Anyway, the second fight I had, I was the swing bout, and it was Ricky Hatton against Justin Roussel was the main event at the Wembley Conference Centre. I went to that. I went to that card.
2: Yeah. yeah, Enzo was on that card as well, wasn't he? He, he Enzo, may well have Kawasaki, been. I yeah, he, he, was, he was. He was.
1: But I remember, I remember you know, who my my boxing? You know, trying to get a look at him, and he had a foreign name and that. Anyway, there was a guy there warming up. He was popping his head out of the opponent's changing room, let's say. And he had these shorts and he had a sponsor, he had proper boxing boots. He wasn't one of these blue shorts Adidas, you know, yeah. with the journeyman that I'm thinking of. So anyway, um, and I'm boxing in the Reyes gloves. I was eight ounce because I was well too at the time. So I was these eight ounce Rayers, and they were like, I'm they were tiny. I could barely get my hands into them. And uh, I remember walking up the stairs. I remember it worked out that I was a swing bat and I was on before the main event. So I'm walking up the stairs and the bout before was Steve Murray. Against, I think it was Jason Hall, one of them, and I think it was Jason Hall coming down the stairs as I was coming up. And his face was absolutely smashed to pieces. <laughs> both his eyes were re- absolutely written off. He had blood coming everywhere. It gashes over both A Big, massive swelling. His nose was swollen to bits. And he, you know, when you just think this is the reality. You know, I've stepped over the line now. This is it. You know, I'm walking in, unboxing this opponent who I know nothing about because, you know, he's a, a foreigner. But I, can put it, but I can tell he's up for it. He's not like a, a journeyman journeyman. He's like got a sponsor and a gown and everything. And uh, yeah, I remember he—he—we he, come out and we were kind of feinting each other, trying to weigh each other up, get that distance. And I remember he feinting the jab at me, and he just clipped me with a left hook. Then, and that, it was a clip. It was like a fast left hook. It didn't like hurt didn't shape me or anything like that. But I remember thinking, "Ooh, that feels a bit different." <laughs> 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 you know. Anyway, uh, I knocked him out in that round. But I just—I remember thinking, "Fucking hell, this is different."
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. It's, it's those gloves uh, just seem impossibly small when you see them in real life, particularly the ones which have got the padding evenly spread or maybe more towards the back of the glove, because that, that's another thing that people don't understand. It There was a good article in Boxing News about this recently, actually, and um, Elliot Wursell wrote it, and it seems people from other sports would find it absolutely incredible that you don't all have to use the same gloves as in the same yeah. design do you know what
1: it is as well and then Carl will uh, 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 confirm this it's like it's not just the gloves in amateur boxing you got three rounds it's so, so quick and you know guys are sharp and you, you're almost you're almost pulling out before you've landed because you don't want yeah. to get countered to get outscored in pro boxing people are coming forward and they're sitting down on their shots and they're not trying to hit you and get a point and get away they're trying to punch through you so you know it's not only the gloves tiny but there's there's a difference with the intent you know people aren't trying to score points people are trying to do damage people are trying to knock you out and that's you know it, it, it's I different.
0: agree completely you know? I had a, and I had a, my style like you were saying earlier on I had a I had a style suited to the pro game um, so it wasn't a really hard transition but yeah I, I used to get frustrated with guys you who know, pointed me and big tall like I said John Joe Nevin type fighters would have boxed my head in but I had this style where I, I felt like I was suited to the pros. But my first few fights, like, you know, you're knocking these guys over. But my debut, I remember getting hit by the guy going, oh, wow, I've never felt anything like this before. Because it's just a it's just different feeling. Um, but that's that's one of the main differences. The gloves are... are right. People don't understand but like what gloves are like until you've actually put your hand in a pro professional boxing glove. Like, you can feel your knuckles through them and stuff, you know. There, there's not a lot in them.
2: No, there really isn't, and when you see big bag gloves and a lot of people who who will just do a bit of boxing circuit training or hit bags or hit pads, I'll hey, tell you, wearing these thing. big bag gloves and ten ounces on, you know, ten ounces on heavyweight. You know, and Anthony and Joshua wears ten ounce gloves, I and mean, when you've
1: done ten, twelve rounds and the, the sweat and the wet and the you know the um, the bandage and that, you know what I mean? That 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 glove, yeah. that's eight ounce, ten ounce. All of a sudden, it becomes
0: hard and heavy, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And there's there's obviously different gloves and stuff. People talk about punchers' gloves and res and stuff. I've never used Res. I I went from Grants to Everlast. Um, and both are probably seen as punchers gloves as well. Um, but there's a there's a there's a big difference in, in different I remember fighting Josh Warrington and he had who's not a noted puncher and he had winning gloves on which are seen to be a safe glove. And I was thinking why, you know, he's not really a puncher. Why why is he wearing winnings? They're not really a puncher's gloves. I got hit in the first round and I felt like my whole world was coming down. So all, all like, pro gloves can... You can do a lot of damage in them. I mean, the wear and tear on your hands, too. I mean,
2: I'm just looking at your right hand there and there's, there's some scarring on that hand. You broke both your hands in, in your last fight.
0: So, I mean, will that make a difference to you now going forward? Well, I, sh- I saw this left hand here. There's a big scar. There's seven screws and a plate in it. And my right hand... Um, there was a tendon ripped And there's a screw, I think One screw put in that um, But I don't think it's going to make a difference if, if I had had this happen at the start of my career It may have been more problematic But I'm at the stage of my career now Where I've only got a few more fights I don't want to be hanging around for, for too many more years So um, the way the specialist says is, is this left, left hand in particular he's like, You need to smash it with a sledgehammer for it to break You're not going to break it By punching because of the screws Or A pillar Falling on it again Something like that um, But It was just mental That was man. Oh surreal I
1: remember texting Jamie I was And I was like I th- I knew he wasn't joking but Yeah was, People like, didn't believe yeah, it But I was thinking This You've got to be joking I know you're not joking But yeah. you've got to be joking me He was like How unlucky Can you possibly be Talk about a freak
0: incident yeah. People still don't believe it And uh, I, To be honest I would probably be one of them if it happened to someone else. Like, oh, bullshit, that's made up story. But I remember Mark Kriegel from ESPN kind of grilling me after the fight. Like, so you weren't drunk, you didn't fight someone in a bar. And I was like, what? That's five days after my fight. You know, I'm. I feel like I'm a fucking consummate professional. I'm not. No, yeah, I'm give not me drunk some credit. Not, you're not going yeah. to go around doing that, so. Um, but he was he was digging and trying to. He he didn't believe me, but. I don't know if he still does, but if I was in that position, I probably wouldn't have believed that it was uh, it was it was mental.
2: It was, and it's it's an example of some of the things that can. It don't come as any great surprise that that kind of thing happens in boxing. I don't know whether things like that happen in other sports. It just it it, it attracts the chaos and it, it it attracts the the madness. I mean, when you when you turn professional, what were your? I think this is quite a good question for you, actually. When you When you started, what were your your goals? The Carl Frampton on day one as a pro, I'd imagine would look at Carl Frampton now and think, "Wow!"
0: Oh, absolutely! Didn't you do well? Absolutely, I feel like I've I've overachieved, and I think that a couple of things I wanted to do as a professional. One was win a British title, which I never done. Um, The other was to win a world title, and. If at the start of my career you had to give me the option of winning a world title and losing it in my first defence, I think I'd have taken that. So to go on and become a two-weight champion and unify a division and, and everything else I've done, I think that's. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted with, with how my career's turned out. But in saying that, I have an option, well, hopefully, to become Ireland's first ever three-weight world champion with a fight with Jamel Herring. Um, extremely difficult fight, but. Me, as a pro, I'd have taken a world title and, and losing it on my first defence just starting out. I'd have taken that. Well, I mean, that that fight with Jamal Herring would be a really interesting one to watch, and, and hopefully
2: that, that gets made, and there's some news on it soon. And it, It's interesting, actually, because at the end of your last fight... He got into the ring, didn't he? Yeah, Jamel Herring, and, and all the talk was, "Ah, oh, Frampton can't beat him. Look at the size of him." Yeah. And I was looking at the photos, and I was just thinking, "But he's in fighting shape, as in Frampton's. So he's just boxed. Herring's not like yeah. he can't, he won't be that big on the night. He can't be that big
0: on the night." But you look at the pictures, and you just think, you know, this is this like, is ridiculous. He and must have been twelve stone, easy. Yeah, so he was he was heavy, um, and he's tall as well. He's like five foot ten, southpaw, but what I like I'm taken from that fit. like he has to make the weight like he, he's the one that's it's a similar position that I was in when I had to make super bantam weight like I know how difficult it was to make a super bantam weight and I know what it felt like getting hit that super bantam weight like I was buzzed a lot by shots that shouldn't have buzzed me just because I was so weight drained body shots used to take it out of me and there weren't real you know there wasn't a lot in them just clipping shots and you'd, oh, you'd feel them as a weight when had a little bit more flesh on me I didn't feel the shots as much. Um, Jamel Hurin, as a super featherweight, was in the same position as I was as a super panda with and I know what it feels like to get hit when you're when you have to be so lean. And he has to make the weight; he still has to do nine stone four. So, and the energy levels as well. If it ends up being a grueling fight at a fast pace, mm. if it's hurt and getting down. It's gonna it's gonna keep me absolutely. The and you know the fight is gonna be in Belfast. I'm I'm pretty sure of that. So. All these new things for him, like he's making weight in a, in a country that he's never been in before and new gyms and all these things play into my favour. So I, I, obviously it's going to be a very difficult fight, but I'm not looking too much into the size he was in November when he, when he stepped into the ring.
2: Hey everybody, this is Moto GP from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast for Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Now, it was just interesting to to read people's reaction to it because they just didn't seem to uh, to understand that the circumstances were just different for the for the two people involved in the picture. One had just boxed and the other one hadn't boxed in, in weeks. But, I mean, it's a really interesting division for you, the super featherweight division, because there's another person who's in it now, uh, which is Santa Cruz. And do you think he ever really intended to give you that that third fight? Because those first two fights were, were such good fights. Mm. I mean, that, that win away against him was... You'll be remembered for that forever. It sounds yeah. it sounds like an exaggeration, but in boxing folklore, you will be because that's a huge thing to go and do. And it's one one.
0: Yeah. Well, both of them, both of them were great fights. Both of them were close fights, and both of them were, were very good and fights that a lot of people like. But I, I thought the third fight would have happened. Um, I never thought there was talk of it. You know, him coming to the UK or Belfast. I never ever imagined that to happen. And. I, and I've said to his people that I'm happy to travel. I'm happy to do the third one in Vegas or even LA again. Um, and it just never materialized. I don't think it ever will now. I don't think it's really down to Leo. I think that he's the type of guy who would just fight who he's told. But I think his management team, for whatever reason, didn't want the third fight. It, and it's it's a shame. It's, it's going to be a shame that it, it doesn't happen. But it'll be more of a blotch on his career when we look back. That the fight didn't happen than on Mang because you know I've you've showed the
1: willingness to do absolutely. the third one. It's down it's him or his team. Yeah, is the reason why it has them. not because of you or your team. You won the fight. yeah. But I, I'm hopeful that it will happen. You know, he's moved up to super, super Feather, as well yeah. now. You know, it's it's a huge fight, isn't it? You know, I'd be I'd be
0: hopeful that from a fans' point of view, a boxing fans' point of view, that it does happen. Well, I? hopefully, you know, if I if I won my next fight and become champion there's probably more chance of it happening then um, there's talk I don't know if it's been announced yet there's talk about him and, and uh, Tank Davis has that been done that fight? I don't think it's been done but I remember hearing a lot about of- that
2: and, and being very much in favour of it because I really like Santa Cruz as a fighter he, he's great to watch but I feel short changed by him since his second yeah. fight against you because he hasn't boxed that much he had a second one with Abdel which was a decent fight but not. not he was never going to be as good as the first one and other than that, he's just not really done very much.
1: He is he, he is, just, is a bit like, like Gary Russell, Russell Jr. Like once a year. Great, great fighters, but boxing once a year. It's like it's a shame because they, these are their years, do
0: you know yeah. what I mean? I think the fight with, with Tank, I don't think he wins that fight, Leo. Um so maybe if I beat Hurrin, which is gonna be very difficult and I have a title, he could beat he gets beat by Tank. Maybe then a fight and a trilogy between me and Santa Cruz does happen, but if I'm the champion and he's not, then we try and do it this side of the pond. I'd imagine, but again, just to make that third fight happen, I, I'd be willing to travel. You
1: can't do more than that, can you? Do you know if you're the champion and you're willing to go over there because you're that willing to do the third fight and he doesn't do it, then history will be not very kind to him. No,
0: no, I don't think so.
1: I mean, one thing you
2: found as well during during the course of your career is that there's there's, there's pressures and stresses and, and strains. Uh, in, inside the ring and in training of course but the, 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 there is also outside of the ring uh, you can't really get into it too much because things are still pending but you probably never imagined that uh, you wouldn't be boxing with, with the McGuigans
0: yeah no I've, I, a few years ago I wouldn't have ever thought that uh, and it's funny how things have worked out and yeah I have to be very careful what I say but there's a, a pending court case which has been put back a number of times and but uh it's been set aside for two weeks now, on the beginning on the 8th of September, so um, I just want to get it over and done with, and uh, to be honest, a court case is something that I'm, I don't think many people would say that, but I'm, I'm half looking forward to it, I just want to get it done and get my point across, and uh, so bring on the 8th of September.
2: Okay, well, we'll leave it, it there. Pay
0: per view, <laughs> <laughs>
2: box office, absolutely. Uh, competing TV networks for that one. I uh, wonder how that would work out. Uh, who's the A side? Who's the B side? You know, we, we could carry on these ludicrous analogies uh, forever. Uh, but but it meant that you had to you had to look elsewhere and um, had to look for for a new trainer. And you're up in Manchester now with with Jamie Moore and it 's been kind of amazing to see what 's happened with him actually I, I was He was on the Sky podcast this week, and I was listening to him, and he was talking about how he started training Tommy Cole as, as a favorite Steve Wood really, and then you asked him, and then things started to to happen from there and It just seems like a really good fun place that Travis as well Nigel Travis we were talking about Kelvin earlier on, just people who they, they love the sport um but what's always uppermost in their minds too is they just want to do the right thing.
1: They're good fellas. I mean, I I let Carl talk more because he's, he's more relevant to the conversation, but I met Jamie here uh, in the Printworks and the Nando's. I was up training with Joe Gallagher. This was after leaving Buddy McGur after the Golovkin last Senate. You know, it was a busy gym. Joe was booming there, and I was kind of probably seen as like, oh, he's just hanging in there. I was on the, certainly the, on the last legs, and I had the gym in Spain. I was renting the digs around the corner and I was just you know I was thinking am I still doing this you know walking around city centres talking to myself killing the time having coffees you know and it was just you know and it was busy in the gym and I think I pulled my hamstring doing the track and I knew it, you know I pulled the hamstring but it was going to be okay so I took a week off and I just thought I remember meeting Jamie we were talking boxing and I remember thinking to myself do you know what Jamie would be ideal for me he, he sees boxing in a very similar way as I see it you know he we basically would be singing from the same hymn sheet he's cool calm and collected he ain't gonna burn my head out he's not gonna try and change me you know he, he knows who I am what I am and he'll just I'll respect him he's been who am I gonna respect more than him me and me come to the well with each other so when I come back to the corner I know he ain't gonna give me 50 things to do I know he'll keep it simple and I'm gonna respect him if I'm in a fight and I do need to bite down on the gum shield and go to war and he tells me that I know that's what I gotta do Um, so for me that was an easy thing but it's it's been great, obviously then everything that happened as well, you know, that was traumatic to say the least you know, um, but to see how he's gone on and the camp he's grew and the lads and the camaraderie and I know him and Norwich are like brothers and you know like they're they're obviously got similar values and principles and morals and to see the crack with the lads they have, you can see they're like an extended family and when you're happy and you feel like people are genuinely really with you, don't half make this tough game a lot easier?
0: Yeah, no, I would I completely agree. I've I was always when I was with uh, Cyclone Promotions and the McWiggins, it was hard, like you know, I'm not taking anything away from, I think, Shane McGuigan's a, g- a good trainer, but it was hard graft all the time. And I remember thinking to myself...
2: it's long, long camps, wasn't it?
0: L- really long camps. There was you know, sometimes 14-week camps. For the Scott fight I'd done 220 rounds of sparring, which is insane, against it's a spar guy like Gary Corcoran, who finished up at light middleweight and stuff. And this guy's trying to punch your head in every week. So it was long and hard, and I used to be having niggles and bad necks and stuff, and, and you used to always just train through it. And I remember thinking, kind of like late 20s, I had this age in my head of 32. I'd like to pack it in by 32. Like I'm counting down the days to be able to retire. But since I teamed up with Jamie and Nedge and, and the rest of the boys in the gym, it's going to be sad for me now to retire. I feel like I'll know when to do it. I don't want to be one of these guys who's in the game too long and, and ends up walking about talking to themselves. It, it will be a sad moment for me, but... I'm since I joined them, um, boys. Like I've enjoyed boxing more than more than I ever did my whole career, and I, I'm talking about when I was come back there, seven year old, just starting out in Midland. It's been uh, the last couple of years have been have been brilliant for me.
2: Well, you had one of your gym mates call it a day fairly recently, Tommy Coyle, and he did it on your podcast actually, That's on right. your Joe podcast with yourself and Chris. And I mean, did he ask you what you thought? I mean, do fighters discuss it with each other,
0: or is it something? You have to decide for yourself, maybe with your trainer and your family. I think, I think he never asked me, um, but I think, I think it's the right decision for Tommy. He had problems with his eyes and stuff that were inflicted through boxing. Um, I think that he certainly called it a day at the right time. Um, but he never, I never spoke to him. It's none of my business, really. Um, there's, there's guys who I feel like should retire um, but I'm not going to get involved no, I think it's up to their team and the people around them and their family as well to, to maybe sit them down it's a hard sport to get out of there's one guy I'm thinking of in particular and that's his name but he's thinking about continuing on and I don't think he should but again it's not for me to say that to him and uh, he's a friend of mine Um and I think that's when his family need to step in and, and trainers maybe and and, and give a wee bit of advice there but it's important to have good people around you I think when it is time for me to pack it in Jamie Moore will tell me Nigel Travis will tell me I think I'm sensible enough to tell myself um, so I think I'll I think I'll know I think I'll know but you know it's I don't want to say like I'm you know I'm looking forward I'm not looking forward to retiring but it's close I have only a few more fights and I don't want to go on for for a long time in the sport so when you look at the sport
2: now as to how it's changed maybe over the last 10 years or so since you've been a professional are there any things in particular that you do you pick up on in terms of how fighters think and how fighters approach their careers because one thing we talk about a lot is how everybody seems to want a 10 or 12 week camp now we mm-hmm. talked to John Pegg about this and um, I think his line was if you're not a world champion and you want a 10-week camp, then you're a dick. Uh, John has John has a great way of putting these things. But is that a fair comment? Is it also true to say, do you think maybe that the boxers want more now than before, they want everything to be ideal and, and the situation to be perfect before they'll agree to about rather than just
0: take fights? I, well, I think so. Speaking to well, so MTK, my my management team and speaking to a guy, few guys that are involved they talk about like, the demands of some of the fighters who aren't selling tickets and are on six rounders and stuff and, and you hear that and you kind of be like oh, you can't just tell them the fucking wise up um, I suppose there is a few more demands made and social media is probably a lot to do with that and, and people getting ahead of themselves but um, I think John probably has a bit of a point there um, although he said it a lot more bluntly than I would say it but it's a, it's a fair point. I, I like twelve week camps, but that's you know I'm fighting, I fight and I get ready for a twelve week or for a fight in a twelve week period. I have like a long time off and I get fat and out of shape, so I need twelve weeks. But as a as a young developing kid, I don't think you should really have too much time out of the gym. You should be training and learning all the time, and um, that's a hot nap. <laughs> um, you should be training, <laughs> you should be training and learning all the time, um, and after fights you know a few days off whatever depending on how brutal the fight's been and if there's no injuries and get straight back into the gym and you know you should be looking to have at least six fights a year starting off at least yo i'm dk co-host of the one star recruits podcast my best friend rip and i host five star athletes celebs business leaders comedians and coaches
2: from around the world each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits.
1: At least. I mean, it's when you. These camps and stuff, like a camp, a 10 week camp, that, that's like when you're a. Uh boxing twice a year, when you're boxing on a headline of a pay-per-view, because you're, you're out the gym for probably three months, yeah, you're, you're going to say you tick over, but chances are you go on holiday, you get a bit fat, you have start next week, and the chances are you haven't done anything for six weeks, so then you maybe need you need six weeks to get to the six-week stage, so that's where you need the 12 weeks, because really the first six weeks is just building a bit of a base fitness, then six weeks out, you're ready to kind of spar and, and really go hard then, but when you're, when you're a young fighter at the start, you're in your boxing regular, you, you're just in for the first two years of your career, probably three years. You should never really be out of the gym. I'm not saying you don't have a few days off after a fight, of course, you do, and you come down off that peak. But then, you know, hopefully you're boxing four or five weeks later, so then you're back in, and you don't maybe have to have those grueling sessions as you have to do when you're trying to get that fitness back up because you should just always be at like a 75 80% fitness. And you's just you're literally then just peaking and dropping a day off, peak back up, day off, peak, you know, or a week off, whatever because you can't stay on a peak, obviously. But, You shouldn't be coming down here either. And if you don't come down here, then you don't need 12 weeks to get back up there, you know. But if you're not living the life in between, or you know, you're at that stage now where you're older and you're you're on a pay per view and you're going to box, you're only going to get two fights a year because of television dates, uh, you know, dictate that, then you can't stay in the gym the whole year because you've got no goal, you've got nothing to to aim for. If you are going to have time out, then you probably do need the 12 weeks. But again, the twelve weeks really six weeks it's two six weeks it's the six weeks to get to the six weeks
2: yeah no that makes that makes that makes total sense to me i mean when you when you look back at, at at your at your fights was there a point where ever you were you were offered one and you and you didn't take it and you think actually I probably should have or you couldn't take it because you weren't fit enough or, or on the other side of it was there a fight you've had where you thought actually I probably shouldn't have gone through with that because you maybe weren't fit I mean things are very rarely perfect are they in boxing No, I, what saying.
0: F- but there hasn't been ai don't think there's been a time where I was given a fight on there was like for example when I fought uh, I had my debut in America um, it was a fucking it was a big night for me it was live on CBS and a, a matinee show so it was uh, CBS during the day it was on ITV back home against a kid called Alejandro Gonzalez But I, I remember was, that in El Paso, and I got dropped it? twice in the first round um, Yes, and I was I was training for a fight it kind of turned out to be
2: not such a bad no, thing it, it worked out because I
0: got the quick fight and the Santa Cruz fight off the back of it I think but um, I was training for a fight, didn't know where the fight was going to be when it was going to be and then it was like you're fighting in El Paso in two weeks. You've been offered this fight, but because at that stage of my career, I was always training and knowing that there was something going to come up, I was able to take it. Whereas other boys would say, "That's nah, too close," but I was I was ready to fight. I was in decent shape. And it it's, it's interesting. To... I had no idea that was that was
2: that short notice. I think
0: I think like three weeks. Three weeks um, was the notice of that fight.
2: So, the quick fight. We're in Manchester. You walk into the room backstage today. There he is. Uh, he's in his cocoon. He's waiting to weigh in. But Joe Gallagher's there as well. Shane McGuigan was there today as, as well. So it was a bit of a reunion from that, from that <laughs> fight almost. But that... I mean I loved that fight okay it didn't really deliver on the night but the build up just had that really great big fight feel to it you had so many you had so many players with with Barry and Shane and you and Joe got really stuck in and we spoke to him about it on the podcast and he said look it was all very deliberate I knew that if if I let Carl and Scott spar verbally, there was only one winner, so I couldn't allow that to happen. So I had to just launch in, you know, balls out and well, just like a wrecking ball and do what I could.
0: The, the, the build up was a lot better than the fight it was a bit of a boring fight, and um, but the build up was, was mental. Uh, you know, there was a little mini tour <laughs> at London, Manchester, and Belfast, and these press, Eddie Hearn came to um, Belfast and like got Boo wasn't allowed to speak, and there was lit. There was lit a thousand people at a press conference, like was called, proper needle, was it? Oh, they were it, called, was it was brilliant. It was mental, but there was there was real needle as well. Um, I remember, I remember there was a lane I used, and I'm going to say it here. And it was, I feel like it was edited out unfairly by Sky because Quick was a Sky fighter at the time. We'd done the head to head, and I said something along the lines of, um, "How you act outside the ring, and your sorry, your level of intelligence." Outside the ring reflects on how you fight inside the ring, you're not a clever fighter. And he says, Well, what do you mean? And I went, I looked at Johnny Nelson and went, Well, he's kind of answered it for me. <laughs> and they cut it out completely. I remember walking away from that thinking, Oh, I've just embarrassed him there. But they left that out. They kinda of even it up a wee bit. So that was Well I remember
1: thinking when Joe had done that podcast, fair play to you, Joe, because he, he was on the board, you know, he was quite, you know, he's an obsessive type of guy yeah. anyway. And he, you know, he looks beyond, he thinks outside the box, and he was thinking, I can't have Carl being sharp and witty there, just tying Quig up and basically embarrassing him and just yeah. destroying him mentally before the ring. So Joe came in and was the bad guy, yeah. and he was the super which he plays that role naturally anyway. And
0: there was a, there was a <laughs> <few> Joe <laughs> done well. He went, yeah. he went, no, he, he won't <laughs> Barry up no, as well. Did. Like he won't Barry up massively. There was a time yeah. where I think it was as simple. <clears throat> Barry McGuigan's real name is Finbar, Finbar mm. McGuigan where Quig just says, "Shut up, Finnbar," and Barry banged the table, on people like, yeah. "He got really into it." There was another. Well, Barry played a story. I mean, sorry, Joe played a story. Oh, movie. he that did. He make- did. He was talking. There was, well, there was another. Um, yeah, there was. A, there was a few incidents. Joe was talking about, you know, the, in his Catholic household in Manchester, there was, there was uh, the Pope. George Best and Barry McGuigan or something like that on the wall, like you were my hero and all. But um, it was it was the build up was funny. But uh, thinking back now, Joe did actually play a bit of a bit of a, a, a blinder. Well,
1: he, 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 he was cute there, Joe, because because listen, Carl's quite witty, isn't he, and sharp and good cracking that way, and you know quick. Nice kid, but he, he wouldn't have the banter the car would. So, if they'd have gone at it verbally, they got destroyed. And you know, Joe had the cup on to know that that would happen. And what would that do to his confidence then? Yeah, you know, was, you're thinking a bit deeper, aren't you? Yeah, you know, yeah. he it's, 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 it was he played that well, I thought. Joe,
2: no, I just loved it. I loved the whole thing. I, I thought the mini press tour was brilliant. And like I say, it just had that really big fight feel about it. And when you've got sort of big figures like, like Barry McGuigan, and, and Joe's a big name trainer, and and Eddie Hearn, as you say, is he's, he's team quig, and there was all the banter, juice, and all that, all of that nonsense. You know, it was just, it was fun, but there was a real proper edge to it. So then, when you get to the night with that kind of, with that kind of fight, were you? I mean, were you surprised at what came at you, or rather, didn't? for the first half just, of the fight, from you the opposite just corner,
0: just me, so I'll answer that question in a second. But there was another point that I remembered, and I still use this term to this day. Joe must have said something that really wound Barry up. And Barry called him, this was in the Manchester leg of the press tour, a nonsense idiot. And I, <laughs> you're, a, you're a nonsense idiot, Joe. And I, and I, I call my kids that when they don't know. I mean, I can like, still call people it. It doesn't make any sense. But No, no I love stuff like that. Yeah. My, 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 my,
2: my mother in law is an Nigerian and um, she's just got a few select words that she's, she calls people idiots. Or, or blockheads. And it's just brilliant because yeah. it just doesn't really... If you say it, most people don't even know what you're talking about. But it's just delivered in such a disparaging way. Yeah, yeah. A nonsense <laughs> Egypt It's like, it's perfect, isn't it? <laughs> but but the fight itself, as you say, it didn't really catch fire. I mean, were you... And we were talking about this earlier, actually. We just went for... <laughs> such a boxing cliche. We went for a Nando's after the weigh-in, yeah. even though we weren't weighing in. And um, we were saying that, you know because you're an experienced fighter Scott didn't really do much in the first few rounds and rather than go crazy
0: and win the massive 10-9 you just won them 10-9 yeah,
2: look, you're just putting them in your pocket good,
0: good advice I got from Shane in the corner was I remember coming back and sitting down like am I winning these rounds because there wasn't a lot going on and he says yeah you're winning them <laughs> just keep doing what you're doing like you're winning them but you don't have to get too excited or, or win them too big you're you know it's 10-9 and that's that's what you need to keep doing Um Going into the fight, I think people were expecting a real humdinger because of the press conferences and stuff, and, and the, the the build up for years, and me trying to fight him for a British title. Like it went on for a long time, um, but I I I didn't think it was going to be that type of fight, and I thought the Quigg was going to be a little bit not as aggressive as he normally is. I didn't think he was going to be as passive as he was in the fight, um, but. I wasn't I was I I wasn't expecting it to be the humdinger that a lot of people thought, but you can't say that when it's a pay per view fight. You can't say it, I think it's maybe a boring fight, um, but that's that's what it turned out to be. No, that's it. That that's another
2: that's another part of being a fighter. You need to it's it, it's the entertainment business, and you've got to sell something. And however you're choosing to go about it and uh, whatever you might think of it, you've got to make out that it's going to be an all-out war. I mean, the absolute king at that was, was Tony Bellew. I mean, his mean, rematch with Oval McKenzie, for example, um, his rematch with Nathan Cleverley, both times he, he said that it was going to be blink or you miss it all out. Both times he had no intention no. Of, of of
1: doing that. None. No, I mean, I mean, Bellew is the master of selling it. Well, I mean, he was the, probably the best self-promoter in, in recent times. But... I suppose with with, you know Carl wouldn't be a value in any way but I suppose even if you're not gonna sell it you can't not sell it you know what I mean you can't say this ain't gonna be a great fight you know what I mean (laughs) I'm gonna box I'm gonna keep it cute you know what I mean you you definitely can't say that (laughs) but you're right I mean it it, it didn't it's funny enough because I was in Los Angeles watching that fight I I was training and uh you know, you know when you're around a long time it's like looks and you know, I stayed up through the other week for the Tyson Fury fight and actually I couldn't get it on BT and I got out of my bed after and I drove over to my mates which was 40 minutes away and you know yeah, you know, yeah. that's the big fight when you do things like that and we were in LA and we were searching somewhere that could get it on anyway I ended up getting up on a laptop and when it streamed we were watching but you know the big fights when you go to those extra measures don't you to, yeah. to, to get it on and you know, big, big anticipation. And like you said, there were a lot of uh, dynamics going into <laughs> yeah. the fight. But it just never caught fire. But no, I remember I thinking, I remember what, you know, we were there watching and it. I was, you know, how, how'd you get that? Because there wasn't a lot happening first year round. I like, Frampton, Frampton, Frampton. Because you wasn't doing a lot either, but you were doing more. Yeah, just land a few you more jobs more. and
0: stuff. That was it. I remember yeah. people saying, you know, yeah, but but Quigg didn't start the round seven. What if he had it? Like, well, what if, you know. Fucking he didn't. <laughs> he didn't. I know, and I think a lot of it was down to me I'm, I'm and my feet work. I'm a distance control, um, and people say, you know, Quig put it on me in the last few rounds, and he he had me in trouble. I think he hit me a shot, and it probably looked. I was never hurt in that fight. It probably looked worse than what it was on the TV, but in that fight, my most clear round was the twelfth round. I won the I won the twelfth round bigger than I won any other round. So people saying, "Oh Quake has started earlier he just stopped you like well what, what, how do you how do you justify saying that
1: but I think people have a narrative in their head, don't they, and they just that, that sometimes that that overrides what actually factually happened yeah. you know they've got this little pattern thing how they seen the fight you know he did come on stronger in the, in the end because he didn't do anything for the first seven yeah. or eight rounds, so obviously he had to do something at some point but like you say. It wasn't like you faded. Yeah, you, you, you won the last round. It was just that he didn't do anything at all in the first half.
0: And another thing that people make a mistake about is his jaw was broken that fight, and they say it was the fourth round. It was broken the sixth round. So obviously fighting six rounds with a broken jaw is you know fair play to Scott for doing that. But it wasn't eight rounds like they tried to make out. There was it was only six rounds with a broken yeah, jaw.
2: And also the, with with that kind of situation. As you say, it, it requires a lot of courage and guts to, to box on with a broken jaw. But you broke it.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, was that uppercut, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a, it was a great shot. And it, um, my dad has it like blown up in his living room. shot <laughs> it's just laughing on question It's a great, it's a great uh, photograph. But that was a shot like, like kind of Fury last week. You know, oh, wow. perforated um, Wilder's ear, and people are saying, oh, well, if the eardrum wasn't perforated," I'm like, "But it was a shot thrown by Tyson Fury that done that." So. Like Kell Brook and Golovkin. Um, was it Glo- who was it, Brookley Isaac? Was it Earl Spence? Golovkin, yeah, both. both, wasn't it? Yeah. both did. Yeah, but the, these fighters are... I know, it's, fighters it, doing it, that. It,
2: it's a strange one, that, because people do sometimes have this idea that, that an injury is somehow unlucky. It's like if you stop somebody on a really bad cut. I mean, I, I never understood the reaction to Lennox Lewis, Vitali Klitschko. Okay, at the time of the stoppage, Klitschko was doing well. He was up on a couple of cards. But Lewis busted up one f- side of his face so badly they had to stop the fight. And that's a TKO. It's not lucky. So if somebody quits has to stop with a broken jaw or any other kind of injury inflicted by the other fighter, it's not luck. But and people just have their different interpretations of it. We've only got a few more minutes uh, with you. Looking forward, you know, you, you know, like you say, a couple more years boxing. Who knows? As long as you're enjoying it and it's going well. Um When that's over, when when you do have to hang them up, are you interested in the training side of things, staying in the kind of business side of things, or are you you happy doing this, basically? You've you've done a fair bit of media work now.
0: I've done a fair bit of media work. We've got the the podcast and stuff going on, doing bits of punditry from time to time, which I enjoy and and I like and I get decent feedback, but training is something that I can 100% say I, I wouldn't do. I think that looking at what Jamie Moore has to do now with... Like he's, you know maybe seven or six or seven or maybe eight eight fighters who are constantly fighting at different times he has no time off i can fight and get ready for a fight and then i can i can take time off as a trainer you don't have the luxury of doing that so you're constantly in the gym and i've i've given life to boxing and i've sacrificed a lot and i've been away from my kids and my wife for a long time so the last thing i'd want to do is, is start training people maybe in a few years or maybe get into managing i think <laughs> managing is probably the easiest game in boxing um Twenty or twenty-five percent, or I'm hearing rumours some people get more um, as a manager for answering a few phone calls and stuff. Um, but who who knows? He would know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it depends how many phone calls and emails you've let every time. you it's not that easy. um no I think it, look you're think, my manager for a while yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think the key thing with uh, managing is is your expertise it's not necessarily man hours so it might not be the workload but it's the uh, the expertise that you've got from all those work hours you've done over the years and it's it's those it's that advice at those crucial points the decisions which will shape your
0: career and, and, and you making know. relationships with people yeah. as well I think obviously just a, a guy who's been involved in the game and knows a lot of faces and and gets on well with most people I think it's going to be a better manager than someone who's annoyed a lot of people or maybe someone green coming in yeah. and uh, yeah so it is you
1: don't want someone learning the trade from the mistakes they make with you in your career you mm. want someone that's made those mistakes and knows what they're on about and can advise you you know it's, ever, it's an ever changing landscape boxing it's constantly changing there's, so you're all, there's always decisions being made it's not like you just oh, so you negotiate your pro contract and that's it there's a million things that happen along the way and it's it's the man- management is like it's like a consultant thing I think really well there's two things there's the there's the one who's going to answer the phone ten times a day and tell you what to you know mind you that's way if, if you're a needy person but then but the real I think that, that, that for, if I was ever going to go back into management it's more on like a consultant basis it's more the the, the expertise the advice at the key moments
0: can I can I say I, I downplayed it I'm not just saying it because you were managing fighters but thinking about it now it's not as it's not as easy managing fighters as I just made it out like answering a few phone calls it's a little bit it's a little bit more than that and there's a lot more to it you need to do it well and there's good managers and there's and there's bad managers
2: yeah that's 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 definitely <laughs> that's definitely true um, how have you found it with Top Rank by the way because uh, we, we we discuss promoters and and obviously we work for Sky and, and so matching with the ones we know best but, but Matt's Worked under all sorts of different promoters, and, and we generally agree that due to the longevity of the company and the man at the top, you have to say that Top Rank are number one.
0: Yeah, they are at the minute, and, and I, I just spoke to Bob Arum last night, and on the phone, um, Top Rank have been great with me. Um, the deal that kind of I got with Top Rank came after a defeat to Warrington. Um, where at the time I was thinking for about two weeks after the Warrington fight, I was unsure whether I was going to continue in my career or not. Um, and then I realised I wanted to fight on I felt like I had more left and I was disappointed with my performance against Warrington and and this deal came uh, through MTK um, getting me this top rank deal and I was like I, you know I was thinking why why am I being offered this deal and it was almost too good to turn down. That's the sign of a good deal isn't it? Yeah it it is and and top rank have been brilliant to me I've uh, I've loved being involved with them and you know, obviously a lot of people link me with uh, Barry and Cyclone Promotions, but I've worked with a lot of promoters. i worked with Eddie, uh, Eddie Hearn, Matrim, and Barry Hearn, even at the start before Eddie came in. I've worked with Frank, uh, and then with Cyclone, and then I've worked with Frank again. I've worked with Al Heyman, and now I'm working with Top Rank. Um, and to be honest, I- I'm really, really enjoying working with Top Rank.
2: Well, actually, here's an idea. If that fight gets made with Jamel Herring, summertime, Windsor Park outdoors—that's what you'd want. It's going to be going to be in Belfast. If that doesn't clash with a sky date, we should go. We should Definitely. go because we've been trying to, you know macklin has been wielding his influence in the world of boxing to get these 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 luminaries like yourself onto this podcast, and uh, Bob Arum's been on the list for a for a good while. So we need to we need to wrestle Bob into a seat at some point. There'll be loads <laughs> of people in town that week, though, would not there? There'll be loads yeah, yeah. of good people to have a chat with. Great, uh, I, I'd outside. love to I'd thanks love to see sure. an outdoor fighter um, in Belfast. It'd be um, it'd be something else. So thanks thanks for your time. Uh, it's always always great to see you. And um, yeah, we'll do this again when we get the opportunity. Why not? Thanks very much, boys. I Enjoyed that. And thanks for tuning in, everybody, as always. If you could get onto iTunes and give us a rate and subscribe, that'd be great. And we'll be back soon.
1: Someone there's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just drooping on down Oh that cement is just it's there for the weight to dare Five will get you ten old Mackeys back in town
0: Sports Social Podcast Network